Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please. Open them back up to Acts chapter 2. Just some things uh, to, before we get to the text, which is 2 verse 40 to 47, or 41 to 47. Uh, I just want to talk to you about some things about Acts. The thing that, the, several things to remember. Number one, Acts is a book of transition. You're going from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to the epistles. So it's a book of transition between the Gospels and the epistles, book of Acts. It's a transition from the life of Christ to life in Christ, book of Acts. It's from a living person to a living organism, the church. It's from Christ, a person, to the church, his people. So this, the book of Acts is a, a transition. So as you keep that in mind, you'll be able to understand why some of the things as it develops through the book, they don't do some things at the end of the book that they were doing at the beginning of the book. It's a book of transition from the Gospels to the Epistles. We see then in, particularly as we look at chapter 2, we see the church in its infancy, but maturing and developing. An ultrasound is a procedure that generates a picture of a baby in the womb. So the young couple go together for their first ultrasound. And after the doctor looks at the picture, he pronounces his verdict, it's perfect. Now, that doesn't mean it's ready to deliver. What he's saying is everything is as it should be, and as it matures and grows, it will come to completion. As we look at the ultrasound of the church in Acts chapter 2, we're examining and looking at some of the things that helps and bring us to the place of completion, that helps and bring us to the place of, if you want to put it this way, perfection. For instance, in Acts 2, we'll see where they gather daily. But as you go back and get into chapter 20, you'll see that they gather weekly. That's part of the maturing process. In Acts 2, they depend on the apostles, where later we see elders and deacons as being their spiritual leaders. In Acts 2, we see them selling possessions and laying their proceeds at the apostles' feet for distribution, where later we'll see they set aside money the first day of the week as they were able. That's part of their growth. That's part of their progression. In the beginning, we see the church strictly is a Jewish community. These are Jewish believers. I mean, you think of it this way. 120 people were met in the upper room. They became empowered by the Holy Spirit. They walked out into Jerusalem and probably at the temple, and 3,000 people got saved. Who were those 3,000 people? They were strictly Jewish. But yet we see, as we get back to Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 13, even in the teachings of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, we come to understand that the church is not just a Jewish community. The church is made up of those believers in Christ, no matter their background, their training, their upbringing, whatever it may be. They're ethnic. So it goes from a Jewish church to believers. And this is one of the reasons why there was such a difficulty in the Jews' mind, because they thought that the gospel is only for them. And so that you see some of that conflict going on within the book of Acts. But as it 
grows and matures, we see that there are greater understanding of the fact that the gospel is for all those in Christ. So the church in its infancy, but maturing, developing. Acts chapter 2 then, verse 41 to 42, or 47. Intentional. On purpose, for a purpose. For instance, why do you discipline your children? I hope you do. Well, one of the reasons you discipline your children is so that when they're out of your presence, they can exercise self-discipline. It's, you have a purpose for why you're doing what you're doing, to do something on purpose, for a purpose. So we're looking at intentional church. What is it that they practice here intentionally? What is it that they did? What was the purpose of it? Church. We need to understand what church is. And this is the definition we're working from. There's several definitions to work from, but we're talking about an organized body of believers gathering to worship God. We are an organized body of believers gathering to worship God. It is not a building. And praise God for this building. What a beautiful facility in which we can, we can gather at, to meet at, a meeting house, if you want to put it that way. It's just a, be- a building for all of us to gather at. But it is not a building. It's a people. This is a, an organized body of believers. It not, this is not a social gathering, although there's fellowship that takes place. This is a gathering of believers. These are, in, these, these are individuals we anticipate. I hope that you're, if you're here this morning, you do know Christ as your Savior. But as a gathering of believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those whose lives have been changed by the gospel. So it's a gathering of believers gathering to worship God. Our focus this morning was on the grace of God. As we sang those, those songs, those hymns. To focus on his grace. We are worshiping God because of Jesus Christ. So it's a gathering, it's an organized body of believers gathering to worship God. It could take place in small group ministry in your home. It doesn't have to be here, but that's an organized gathering of believers to worship God. So intentional church. So when we look at these in, in these verses, we're going to see five intentional activities of the first century church. And I'm not, I don't even have time to look at all five of them today. We're only going to take the time to look at one of them. But hopefully it'll be able to impress upon us that we will intentionally do church. That we will focus on these things that we're focused on even in this ultrasound of the first church. Intentional church. Now, I'm working up to Acts chapter 2 verse 41. But there's a, I want you to get a little more of a flavor of the context of what is happening here. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the apostles and disciples were with Christ before his ascension. Their question was, when are you coming back? In other words, they were, they were concerned about when he was coming back. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. But this is what you need to do. Acts 1.8. You need to go wait for the Spirit of God to empower you, and then you are to fulfill your responsibility to evangelize, not only locally and regionally, but around the world. 
Sometimes we get, so, we get so focused on, well, what about your return? And he's saying to us, listen, this is the responsibility I've given you to do, as he tells them in one, Acts 1.8. So they leave the Mount of Olives. They return to the city. It says they go to the upper room. I'll tell you something else before I get to the next thing. This is also, this is the Feast of Harvest, or Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. This, 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 the whole Passover uh, gathering that took place in Jerusalem, the, the Feast of the Harvest, or Pentecost, was all part of that. So generally, often, what would happen, if you took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, you more than likely stayed those extra 50 days to celebrate the Feast of the Harvest, or Pentecost. Then the ascension takes place. So 50 days from the Passover, which would be the crucifixion. 50 days later is Pentecost. 10 days before Pentecost is the ascension. So from the time Christ ascended to heaven until they actually got to the uh, feast, can you see it? Feast of the harvest was about 10 days. Did they spend all that 10 days in the upper room? I don't know. But we do know that they were in the upper room. There was approximately 120 of them. It was the first day of the week. Then verse 8 of chapter 1. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I'm in verse 1 and verse 2 now. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house, the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was not gibberish. We'll see here later in verse 6 the Jewish gathering of people there in Jerusalem were able to understand in their own language, and they, they thought, that the, how can they do that? They, they must be drunk. Peter then explained, no, this is the moving of the Spirit of God in our lives. So they went back. The, the promise was fulfilled. And then begins what happens in the rest of the story there. So, the church is born. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 47, the church is born. This is when the church is born. This is when the church started. The event, there in verses 1 to 13, this is the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower. This is exactly what Christ had promised. He said, return to Jerusalem, and the Spirit of God will come upon you. Now, Christ had previously taught, if you read through John chapter 7 through 16, There's about five or six references specifically to the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter. In fact, he says, if I do not leave, they said, no, do not leave us. And he said, if I do not leave, the Comforter will not come, or the Helper will not come. Now, the ministry of the the Spirit of God is several things. But part of his ministry is to empower us to witness. So that promise was fulfilled that Christ had told them to do. Now, we get into... The explanation. 
This, this is the radical message of the gospel. And I, I use the word radical because this was mind-blowing. When they left the upper room, they came out into the streets. And the people had heard this rushing wind. In other words, it was a wonder. It was a phenomena. It was not something normal. And it, and it brought a rushing together of the, the people, it, which is interesting. When you think this is the feast of the harvest, there's going to be such a great harvest of souls this day that it's going to be unbelievable. So as there's this great gathering, where did they gather? It doesn't tell us exactly, but the only place that could handle that many people is the, the temple outer court. So we think that they moved as it was because this is where they, they worship most of the time up until they were kind of kicked out. They gathered, the believers gathered to worship. So Peter comes then in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all those who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, but since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what we, we, was spoken by the prophet Joel. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, with, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. It wasn't that far removed from the crucifixion that those that were there fully knew about this Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined purpose, on purpose for a purpose, and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then down to verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would rise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received him, from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And then verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel now assured, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, this is the promised Messiah. This is the Messiah that you were told about in the Old Testament. I'm not telling you something that you didn't know. These, these were Jewish Believers, or, or in the sense that they were followers of Judaism. The fact that they were devout is that they were there to celebrate the, the, the Passover and the Feast of the Harvest. Also, you have to remember that in the Jewish culture, you were taught from, from, the, from, a, from a youth the scriptures. So when he laid out his case to them, there was recognition immediately of what he was talking about. So follow along. Verse 37. Now listen to this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Repent! It cut them to the quick. As you look at this message that he delivered, it's what we call the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1-5 is the, the capsule of the gospel. The eternal Son of God The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and then victoriously rose from the dead. He has triumphed over the penalty of sin. He has set us free from the power of sin. And he is coming again to deliver us from the presence of sin. And as we look at the message that Peter gave here, it takes about three minutes to read through it. Is that all he preached? If you look at verse 40, I would say to you categorically, no, that's not all he preached. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So there was many other words that were convicted or or continued in that. It it may have been a 15-minute message. It may have been a two-hour message. There may have been some question and answers. We know that he quoted various scriptures to help support his points as he's delivering this gospel message to these Jewish um, Judaizer followers, Jewish followers of Judaism. Notice several things in the gospel that he's delivered here. There were two events that happened in Acts 2, verse 14 through 40. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. He came... He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. David is still in the grave, remember? But Christ is alive. We are the only religion that exists that have a living founder. There's two events. There's Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. There's there's two gospel witnesses. He appeals to the, the prophets He quotes from Psalm 16, Psalm 11, and also Joel, the book of Joel, I think it's verse 2. And also he appeals to the apostles who also witnessed these things. So you have two events, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. You have two witnesses, you have the prophets, and you have the apostles. You have two gospel conditions. There is the internal, which is repent and believe or receive. That's the internal, but also there's the external, and be baptized. So there's two events, Christ's death, his resurrection. There's two witnesses, the prophets and the apostles. There's two gospel conditions. There's repentance and faith, and then there's baptism. There's two gospel promises, forgiveness, and also the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The gospel. And there's an invitation there's an invitation. Sometimes it's spoken and sometimes it is implied. For instance, they said, he said, now, he didn't say to them after he was done preaching, verse 36, but rather they responded. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then this follows the invitation, repent. And with many as other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a, an in, the invitation, be saved. Now, sometimes I, I imply an invitation. Sometimes I specifically say to you an invitation. But let me say to, this, you, to you right now, I'm inviting you. If you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never been born again, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. He satisfied God's righteous demands. He satisfied God's righteous demands to punish us. He died in our place that we could have life, eternal life. And if you today would like to be saved, repent and believe, receive Christ. That's the invitation. Then that's followed by the effect. And the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. The Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. They gladly received the word of God. They were baptized. They were added to the church. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent, and you shall be saved. So that's all that is leading up. They had this great message, this great gathering. So that all leads up to where we're at with the first intentional activity that we want to see here in our text. A ministry, as we apply it to us, Faith Bible Church, we want to be a ministry that is biblically based. Verse 42 Verse, the first part, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We want to be a ministry that is biblically based. It says they continued steadfastly. It means to adhere to with strength, to hold firm with unwavering commitment. Many of us have heard of the reformers Luther and Calvin. They were alive in the 16th century. They were seeking to reform the Catholic Church, and unable to do that, they began... Luther, the Lutheran ministry, and Calvin, the Presbyterian ministry. But they were leading reformers of the 16th century. Very few people know about a man by the name of John Huss, who was actually a forerunner. He was alive in the 15th century. On July 6th, at the age of 42, which was also his birthday, 1415, he was burned at the stake. He was given one last opportunity to renounce his faith And his answer was this. What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. He had a firm, unwavering commitment to the word of God. To the point he was willing to die for it. When we talk about continued steadfastly, that hold to hold firm with unwavering commitment... We want to be a biblically-based ministry. We want to have that kind of commitment that John Huss had. He was willing to die for it. The Apostles' Doctrine. Sometimes that's also translated the Apostles' Teaching. This is foundational truth from the Scripture. They were teaching of Christ for spiritual growth and maturity. You have to remember, all those, these Jewish believers, 
may have been well-versed in Scripture. They were not well-versed in Christology. So I believe that when you talk about the apostles, doctrine, apostle teaching, it probably was prominently focused on the Christology. Now, as the church develops, in other words, as the church matures, we'll see the other doctrines develop through the epistles. You have the doctrine of, of uh, theology, which is the, the doctrine of God. You have eschatology, the doctrine of last things. You have ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church. You have pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So those, those other doctrines were developed as time went on. But I believe that the primary focus, right at this point at least in time, was that area of Christology. To help them understand the Messiah that was foretold has come. It's been fulfilled in Christ. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Christ. Many points of theology, as I said, were developed and refined later. The saving work of Christ was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecy. Jesus had to be rejected. He had to be crucified. He had to be buried. He had to be raised from the dead. See, this same Jesus died to pay our penalty. This same Jesus lives to conquer the power of sin. This same Jesus is coming again to deliver us from the presence of sin. This Jesus, this Christ, this Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, this is the one we want to proclaim to you. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. So, why do we want to be a ministry that is biblically based? Let me give you several, propose several things to you. First of all, the power of the word to convict. I, I, I'm not a great orator, I know that. I'm not going to persuade you to anything. I, in fact, I try even not to put people on a guilt trip so they're making a decision because they feel guilty rather than they feel convicted. I try to be real careful that way. But the Word of God has its own convicting power. The Word of God has the power to change lives. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, it will expose sin and unbelief. Notice, did you notice their words? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why was that? Because it was the word of God. They were cut to the heart. The word of God does that. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will expose sin. It will expose unbelief. The second thing, The power of the word to convert would be a natural byproduct that convicts the power of the word to convert. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This is alive. This, planted in the heart, will germinate a seed. It will convict. 
but it also will convert. Romans 1 verse 16, Paul said, remember this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This innately within itself, it is absolutely unequivocally powerful. That's why an individual who has never been in a preaching service, never been in a Bible study, can sit down and actually read the Word of God and come to know Christ as their Savior. It's powerful within itself. The most powerful advice I can give you in witnessing, always leave them with Scripture. It's powerful. It convicts the power of the Word to convert. It's the truth of the gospel that saves. Third, let me read a a third proposal. The power of the word to cleanse. John 17, 17. Let me give you the context. Jesus is in the garden. He's about to be arrested. And he's going to be tried. Then he's going to be crucified. And he's praying. He prays about several things, but he ends his prayer. He's praying for his disciples for those that are present and those that are to come. He was not only praying for the disciples who were with him, he was praying for us, disciples that were to come. And he prays in John 17, 17, uh, he says, I, I don't pray that you take them out of the world just as, as, uh, because they are, they are in the world but separated from the world. And he goes on and he says, John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Sanctify is to set aside from sin unto holy God. Set aside from sin unto holy purpose. Sanctify them through the truth. Set them aside from sin and sinful behavior, sinful influence. Bring them to that place to desire purity, personal purity, purity within the church. The power of the word to cleanse. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We want to be a church that is biblically based, a ministry that is biblically based. Not only because of the power to convert vict, the power to convert, the power to cleanse, but also the power to comfort. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I, for the Lord has said, his words himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To reassure us, to comfort us, to encourage us. It is possible to face the future without fear. Why? Because we have the power of the word to comfort us. The word is, is rich and filled with promises to compel us to encourage us through the darkest trials, through the most difficult days, through joys and fears. The power of the word to comfort. There are more, but let me end with this one. The power of the word to complete. Isaiah 55, 11. Great verse. Just really one of those great verses. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. 
it shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. It will always accomplish its intended purpose. You have experienced this. I've experienced this. I sat in a class being taught on the Word of God. I sat in a preaching service. The pastor or the teacher had a particular point they were trying to get across. But that's not what I got from the message. Because God used that Word to speak to my heart. It'll always carry out its intended purpose. It will never return void. The power of the Word to complete. Isaiah 55, 11. We want to be a ministry that is biblically based. The power of the Word to convict to convert, to cleanse, to comfort, and to complete. We, we, we must not compromise the message that is given to us to proclaim that is the Word of God. There is a health and wealth gospel. There is a feel-good gospel. Paul in Galatians says, anathema, he says, that God will judge you for those who embrace any other gospel than that which is laid out in Scripture. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has extended to us grace through Jesus Christ. He did for us that we could not do for ourselves. So let me end with this. The first intentional activity was commitment to truth. A church grows stronger through teaching, Living and sharing the word. Are we growing stronger? Are you growing stronger? Do you have a closer walk with God now than you've ever had before? Let me ask you this. How much time do you personally spend in the word? Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading a devotional that is Bible-based? Who are you listening to? Where are you finding your comfort? Where are you finding your encouragement? A ministry that is biblically based, committed to, as we go forth as Faith and Bible Church, we want to be committed to truth, a ministry that is Bible-based. Whether it be in our Awana program, our small group ministry, from the pulpit, in the home, or in your private devotions. A biblically-based ministry. We're going, to clo- we're going to sing a closing hymn here in a minute. Here's the invitation. If you're here this morning, and you can look around, it's okay, but if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, don't leave without speaking to myself or one of the other pastors, and we'll have someone show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. Second part of the invitation. Are you committed to the Word? I mean, are you really, truly committed to the Word? Or do you just have a casual relationship? That unwavering commitment, like John Huss, who was willing to die at the stake July 6th, his birthday at 42 years old, because he would not compromise. 
Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, for individuals that may be here this morning that do not know Christ. Lord, I pray that as we planted the seed, you're the one that brings the conviction. You're the one that, that quickens. You discern the intents of the heart. And Father, also we pray that there may be, as a church, but also it comes from individuals of a commitment to the word, a commitment to truth, that it may mark us, that it may be intentional, an activity that is on wavering commitment to you and to your word. We thank you for the witness of Peter. We thank you for the response that you brought about. A phenomenal moving, a phenomenal harvest took place. Oh God, we pray for a harvest among our own people. We pray for a harvest among the people of Naples. We pray for a harvest among our missionaries who are we partnering with around the world. Oh, Father, we pray that we may see souls come to know you, see lives changed for eternity, and that we may have the privilege of each of us being part of that and having to participate in that as we seek to share the word because of his life-changing power. Oh, God, as Paul said, that we will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to bring men to salvation to everyone who believes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.